If you have your Bibles with you, I will invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you turn and as we begin, let me go to the Lord in prayer for his help. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as a former male child with younger brothers and an uncle to nephews, let me tell you an observation I have made. Boys like to build towers out of anything that looks like it will stack, usually for the express purpose of then knocking it down later. Now, I am also a girl dad which means at some point I needed to learn how to braid hair. I am by no means a professional hairdresser, but, and my girls can tell you if this is true or not, hopefully I've progressed beyond disaster braider. Here's the connection to the sermon text. If you've read many of Paul's letters, you'll notice he usually works like the boys. He stacks things up one by one so that most of his epistles, his letters, are roughly first half doctrine or teaching or what we call the indicatives. And then the second half, built on those indicatives, commands or exhortations or imperatives. The major difference being Paul's towers don't fall down. Peter, however, is different. The passage that we're looking at tonight, much like the rest of the book, is more like a braid. He weaves together the things he wants his readers to do with the doctrinal truths that undergird it and the ways he wants to see these commands implemented. It's as if he's weaving together this rope that's strong enough to keep us tethered during the stormy trials of our exile. And I will admit, we are only going to begin to scratch the surface of everything that he says in these verses tonight. There are four imperative verbs in our text tonight. Four things that Peter says, do this. And that's how I've set our outline. One point for each command. And as we work through the text, we, weren't, we won't spend a lot of time on specific application Because as we'll see in coming weeks, that's actually what Peter does in the rest of the letter. It's almost like here he's going to introduce these broad categories, and then he's going to unpack them later. He's going to apply them to different situations. So we'll leave a lot of the specifics to what Peter says in coming weeks. Tonight, I want us to look at each of these commands, along with the truths, the indicatives braided together with them. And we'll see what each, what each command is, then see why Peter says to do it, and then how. The outline in the back of the bulletin has those four points to match these four verbs. It's hope completely, holy children, humble conduct, and honestly cherish. Kids, you can be listening for words like holy and holiness, father, child or children, faith, hope. Love, grace, Peter, God, 
and Christ. So let's start with verse 13. Verse 13 in the command to hope completely. And Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We start with therefore. Peter begins these commands by looking back, back at what he had just written. And when he does this, he's demonstrating what has always been true this side of the Garden of Eden. Grace precedes law. These commands, and especially this first one that he's given on where to set our hope, are based first and foremost on past grace. He's saying, because you've already received mercy from the Father through the resurrection of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word, now, here's what you do. In light of all the past grace, now here's what you do. Grace comes first. Personal holiness and love for God and future hope are the proper outflowing of gratitude by anyone who has received the abundant grace of God. We can never and we will never receive through our works what God gives us by grace. So to paraphrase Edmund Clowney, the therefore comes before the imperatives of the Christian life, not after them. And if, if we have all of this in Christ, this inheritance, this hope that we looked at last week, then the first thing that we should do, especially in times of trial like Peter's readers, is look beyond our circumstances and our difficulties in hope. We can set our hope fully on future grace because we have already experienced past grace. But this is the second half of that why of hope. Because with all that is already ours in Christ, there is still more yet to come. We have hope in a future grace. We have faith in what we look back on, but we have hope in what we look forward to. In the words of one commentator, Peter writes about grace that is fully present, but not fully realized in their lives. Remember, for these Christians, the the culture around them was making faithful obedience to Christ more and more difficult. So if they looked around their experience of the world, if if that was all that there was, then endurance in in suffering would seem like the most foolish endeavor in the world. But they can endure, and so can we, Because we have the promise that as surely as Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand, He certainly will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. And those whose hope is in Him will not be disappointed. They will receive grace when He is revealed. But let's make sure we define our terms, though. In the Bible... The word hope is not a synonym for wish. A wish is something you sit around daydreaming about. But hope is something certain enough 
that you begin acting upon it. Peter's command is to place that hope completely in the grace Jesus is bringing us when he returns. He does not say, place their hope in some improvement on this earth, but in the renewed heaven and earth. These Christians beginning to suffer, they weren't called to hope for a Christian emperor or for the world around them to collapse in judgment or that through small compromises with the culture that their difficulties would somehow get easier now. They were to hope completely in the second coming of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, endurance in faithfulness will not be fueled by improvements in our circumstances. The right person winning an election or your spouse becoming more Christ-like or your kids getting into the right school or you getting a better paying job, none of those things are strong enough to bear the weight of the hope you need to grow in holiness and endure in suffering. The only time all wrongs are made right, all tears are wiped away, and your entire body and soul will be whole and pure is when Jesus Christ is revealed in glory. And with your eyes fixed forward to that day, you will be able to endure whether your nation is Christian or pagan, whether your spouse is godly or wicked, whether your kids are successful or struggling, and whether you are rich or poor. So Peter says completely hope, but he, in, the, in the how, he adds two descriptors to this. He's not calling for a starry-eyed, pie-in-the-sky escapist view. He's not saying be so heavenly-minded that you are no earthly good. No, true Christian hope is a living and active one. And it all starts, he says, in the mind. Peter says Christians must have girded minds and sober minds. And most translations take the vivid imagery out of this first statement. Peter literally says, having girded up the loins of your mind. The picture is of a, of a man gathering up a long tunic, tucking it into his belt so that his movement is, is free so he can run or work or fight. He's not hindered. We might say something like, having untucked your shirt and rolled up the sleeves of your mind. You see, hope in Christ's return is only effective for those who are ready to be active in their thinking. And it's out of these prepared, active minds that hope flows into holy lives and into sincere love. So, girded minds, then Peter adds, Christian hope accompanies sober minds. Those who have no hope drown their sorrows in, it, in intoxication. Those who have shallow hope are air, airheaded and gullible. Those who have misplaced hope are insecure and they get blown this way and that by false promises or by circumstances that undermine that false hope. 
But Peter says, those who have Christian hope are clear-headed, serious, and alert. They understand what needs to be done now in light of what is coming, and they get down to it. In the words of one commentator, drunken people in long garments are not very good at hard labor. And so Christian hope comes from minds that are girded and prepared. Peter doesn't stop there, though. Those who are to hope completely also must act as holy children. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here Peter touches on at least four reasons why Christians should live holy lives. First, he says, Christians are children. Children who are dependent on our Father to set our agenda for us. He knows what is best for us. And He has the right to tell us, as a Father, how we should live. Growing up, my dad would often say something like, in the Rain's house, we do this, or we don't do that. Kids, maybe you've heard something similar to that, right? Did that mean that if I didn't live up to the expectations that my dad would make me change my name or kick me out of his house? Of course not. He was not teaching me and my siblings how to become a Reigns. Instead, he was saying, since you already are my child, this is how you are to behave. Because it's good. Because it's right. That's how it is with our Father in heaven. He has claimed us as his own. He has given us his name. And through our regeneration, he has changed our nature. So now, since we are children of God who are spiritually alive, we must be holy. Second, we are to be holy because we are called. The people of God are those that have been called out of the world and called to himself. You see, we're not only saved from sin, but we are saved to a calling, to be holy, to be set apart, different from a world lost and dead in sin. We didn't call ourselves. It is the Lord who has given us this specific summons. So we are to respond to him appropriately. The third reason we're to be holy is because we're not only children, we're not only called, but we are commanded. Peter quotes from the Old Testament. He's citing from the holiness code in Leviticus. And he says, this is for you, Christian. In the new covenant, This is not merely an Old Testament Mosaic Covenant requirement. Those who are in Christ, this side of the cross, are commanded to be holy. And then finally, Peter gives the reason of God's own character. 
Question four of our shorter catechism lists holiness as one of God's unchangeable, eternal, and infinite attributes. Holiness is descriptive of God's very essence. Because the Father who calls us and who commands us is holy, we must also be holy. We should bear the family resemblance. We should look like our heavenly Father. The Lord does not call us to anything other than what He already is. So kids, think about this. If your parents told you not to play in the street and spent all their time running out into traffic, do you think you'd pay very close attention to their rules? How about if they made you eat all your vegetables, but they only ever ate cake and ice cream? Would you think very highly of their other rules? But if your parents love you, and they care for you, and they don't require anything from you that they don't do themselves, doesn't that make you want to be more like them? That's how it is with the Lord. We see what He is like. We see His holiness, and it makes us want to be more like Him in all that we say and do. So that's the why of holiness. Let's look at the how of what Peter says. First, he says that being holy entails obeying like children. Sometimes in our desire to avoid legalism, which none of us want to be legalists, we treat obedience as if it were a dirty word. It is not. Obedience is not only good, it is necessary. Legalism says we need to add rules to Scripture to make sure we don't even get close to sin. And then we need to require everybody else to submit to our set of rules. And if we don't do it or if they don't do it, then we're in danger of losing God's love. Holiness, on the other hand, says, I am God's child. So I'm required to follow His rules found in his word. I'm not beholden to someone else's list. And that since I am his child, I'm not in a position to judge others, especially against my own standards or my own performance. And that since I am already God's child, my obedience does not earn and does not keep my salvation. Holiness says, since I am already a member of God's family, I humbly and I joyfully submit myself to my Father's rules because it's good for me and it's honoring to Him. Parents, we would love if we and our children were seen as intelligent and nice or popular or successful. But how many of us are desiring and striving to be known as obedient? Oh, that we would all pursue holiness as obedient children of God. The second way Peter speaks of this holiness is opposing conformity. It's similar to what Paul wrote to the church in Rome when he said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. 
However, Peter has a different emphasis here. Sometimes it can be easy to see the insanity and the danger of a culture completely opposed to God and his word and look at it and say, look how awful. Let's stay as far away from that as we can and then we'll be fine. But Peter goes one step further. It's not enough to point at the sins of others as something to be despised and avoided. You must not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, he says. Scripture uses passions as this broad category of sinful desire. So not only sexual sins, but anger and pride and greed and gluttony all fall under this category of desire, evil desires. So Peter says here, don't merely look at others and avoid their sins. Put off the sin that so easily entangles you. And so Matthew Henry warns, we must especially watch and pray against the sins to which we are inclined. Then the last way Peter describes Christian holiness is an outright consecration. The imperative from this section is is in verse 15, and it simply is, be holy. But then Peter adds, in all your conduct. Christian holiness is not merely doing enough good actions. It must be all-encompassing. Christian holiness corresponds to the holiness of the God who doesn't just merely do holiness, but who has angels surrounding him, shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. True holiness flows from a purified and a set-apart heart, and it doesn't hold back any areas of life from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense of integrity to this holiness. It must be descriptive of every part of the Christian's life. These people have been set apart for God, and they must not shrink back from obedient and complete holiness despite the opposition from their own flesh or what they might get from their neighbors. Peter says that the holy children of God are those who are hoping completely in Christ. But then he goes on to add that we must exercise humble conduct. I'm stretching my alliteration a bit here, I'll admit. Beginning at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We have a father who has called us. Peter says, in response, we call on him as father. But Peter does not want us to forget who that father is. 
He is also the judge of all who judges impartially. Reminds me of of the great threat that every southern mama levels to her young sons. When your daddy gets home, he's going to put the fear of God in you. Any of you guys ever hear that one growing up? In our culture, we have lost some of the proper reverence that children should show their parents and especially their fathers. And this is in part due to the fact that many fathers are passive and they don't live in a way that commands much proper fear. And it is also due in part because weak and cowardly men who could not ever earn the respect of their wives and children instead abuse them into a fear that he will harm them. But we do not look at God's fatherhood through the lens of these poor reflections of sinful men. In the words of one commentator, fear of God is not inconsistent with loving him or knowing that he loves us. And another one says, holy confidence in God as a father and awful fear of him as a judge agree together. So while we who have placed our trust in Christ have been freed from the terror of divine wrath that our sins justly deserve, it is good that we are reminded that God doesn't simply overlook our sins because we are his children. He would, in fact, be a bad father if he did not correct us. And while fear of consequences is not a sufficient reason to obey on its own, it is a valid one. We will give an account for every word. And the Lord Jesus himself promised heavenly rewards for those who pursue righteousness and store up their treasures in heaven. So we ought to revere God and to act accordingly. But the greatest motivation of all to be holy in all of our conduct is the gospel itself. Peter briefly touches on the law, but he spends several verses glorying in the gospel. For those who are in Christ, he says, we have been ransomed. That word translated ransomed, it it describes the way in Greco-Roman society that a slave could be freed by a price of silver or gold being paid to his owner. But more importantly than that, Peter is again using Old Testament language. Israelites could ransom their family's property that had been sold. The restitution for certain sins in the Mosaic law was called a ransom. And so was the sacrifice offered when a firstborn son was born. But most importantly of all, and you ladies that are doing the Exodus study, you're going to get to see this. God himself redeemed, ransomed Israel out of bondage in Egypt. So Peter's saying, instead of physical slavery in Egypt, we have been redeemed out of empty slavery slavery to the fruitless, sinful ways that we inherited from our forefathers. And whether he was writing primarily to Gentiles who had inherited literal paganism, or to Jewish Christians whose parents had over time drifted from proper worship and obedience, what was true for them is true for us. We inherit a sin nature from our parents, and unless someone else acts we will remain enslaved to sin and unable to escape its clutches. 
Thanks be to God that he has done just that. He paid the price, not of silver, not of gold, but the precious blood of his only son. Jesus, like the Passover lamb and like sacrifices described throughout Leviticus, was perfect. There's no blemish, there's no spot in him. And above all, this was not some reaction of God to unforeseen events. This was all planned beforehand, Peter says, from the foundation of the world. Even before sin had been committed, God had planned to make himself our redeemer. And so because God is our loving father, an impartial judge, and our gracious redeemer, we see that to willfully disregard his instructions for our lives is to treat as worthless the precious price that Jesus paid for us. It is to treat as worthless his perfection. It is to treat as worthless the eternal plan of God to save us as his people. We should heed Peter's words. We should humbly conduct ourselves with proper fear during our time on earth. That's the why, here's the how. First, he says, calling on God as Father. God is the one who has called us to be his own, and so we respond. We own him as our Father, and we submit ourselves to him in reverent love. Second, by fearing him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God is the right frame of mind for holy living. Third, he says, knowing. Particularly knowing the gospel. Because if we, if we merely fear God as a judge without knowing him as father, well, then we might obey him out of servile fear. But we'll eventually come to resent his rules and hate his person. The law of God cannot give us the power to obey it. But through the work of the Lord Jesus, whose life, death, resurrection, and ascension has set us free from our former ways, we are now able to obey God, not merely as servants, but as his adopted children. Through the gospel, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to obey God's law. Fourth, we do this believing. If we do not have faith, we will not be holy. It's as simple as that. Our justification is all of grace received by faith, and our sanctification is all of grace received by faith. If we are to be holy as God is holy, and to conduct ourselves with fear, all our trust must be in Christ alone and not in ourselves. And fifth, we conduct ourselves in fear by hoping. There's that word hope again. Peter says our faith and our hope are not in ourselves, but in God. And when they are in him, we abandon all other hopes but him. In scripture, when you hear faith and hope together, 
You should be expecting to hear one more word. You should be expecting to hear that third virtue, love. Faith, hope, and love go together. So surprise, surprise, the last command Peter gives is for Christians to honestly cherish one another. He says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The last command is to love one another earnestly. Let's begin again with the why. The why of honestly cherishing. Peter says, first, because we have been born again through God's word. Peter's point is that Christian love is not something we can create in or for ourselves. The very same word that comes from outside of us and is implanted in our hearts, growing into faith and love for the Lord, also produces love for his people. Peter says this word is an imperishable seed. The the price that Christ paid in his blood was imperishable. And the means through which we receive that grace, his word, will never perish. The seed brings the new birth and through it the the subsequent new life that Peter has been speaking of. And so it's a living and abiding word. The, The plant of faith growing in the Christian heart is the hardiest of species. It cannot fail to bring the fruit of the Spirit which starts with love. It's a living, abiding word, causing those who receive it to spring to spiritual life and abide in Christ. And then Peter quotes from the prophet Isaiah. You notice how much he's using the Old Testament here? We could probably learn a lesson. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah to bring reassurance to these Christians facing the threat of being persecuted and ostracized by one of the greatest and longest lasting empires in history. And he says, even the apparent glory of these opponents was merely man's glory and it would fade like a flower. Their hope was in the abiding, living word of God which would stand forever long after the Roman Empire crumbled. This very same word was the means of their spiritual life, which would never die. And amazingly, that same word was declared by Isaiah centuries before the birth of Christ. And that is the very exact same word that is the gospel preached to these Christians and what has been preached to us. And so, Christ Church, we dedicate ourselves to the same thing Peter did, preaching the Word. God's Word accomplishes everything He intends for it to do, and it will not return void. So in the midst of a culture losing its mind, what we need, more than honest politicians or a Christian prince or legal protection, is men who will stand up in the churches of God and preach His Word. And only that will produce love for the Lord and for his people.
So by all means, pray and work for those other things because they'll be good for us and they'll be good for our neighbors. But if the church abandons her work and we lose the proclamation of the gospel, everything else is meaningless. Then the other reality is that being born again by this word, we're born again into a family. There's no Lone Ranger Christian. And especially in times of difficulty, no Christian is going to make it on his own. Michael Horton puts it this way, The church is not a group of friends I get to choose, but a family of brothers and sisters chosen for me. If we have God as Father, we have all His children as siblings. So Peter says, Since we have been purified for the purpose of brotherly love, we must love each other. So take a quick second and look around the room. Go ahead. You must love these people because they belong to you and you belong to them. We have communion with all the saints, but the command to demonstrate love is not merely to some theoretical group out there. It's not to the Facebook friends that I love talking theology with. It's not to the people who live in the way that I think is the best way to live. It is first and foremost to your brother and sister whom you can see. And if you can't love your brother whom you can see, how will you love God whom you can't see? This is your family. So love each other. Even the weird uncles. Finally, Peter describes how we are to love one another. And he's very concerned that this be done in purity. He says the necessary precondition for Christian love is a purified soul. Pure love for our brothers and sisters means we must first stop loving sin in the world. We must be washed by water and the word as the Holy Spirit works in us. And then out of that sanctification, we grow in Christian love. We also must demonstrate this love with pure hearts and pure intentions. Peter says this love must be sincere, earnest, and from the heart. So we're not to look at each other as burdens we have to endure. We're not to use our relationships in the church as means to further our own agendas or get what we want by using people. We must love as Christ loved us putting others' needs ahead of our own, truly seeking what is best for them. Whether that means speaking uncomfortable truths or being inconvenienced to help serve them or rejoicing with them in good times or weeping in hard times, the heart that loves the Lord will inevitably overflow with love for His people. All right, so now step back with me. And let's look once more at this passage all together. Let's consider the braid that Peter has interwoven in this section. He's taken the gospel truths of what the Lord has done for us, and he's layered them in with the responses we ought to have and how. 
Our thoughts, our words, and our deeds ought to change because all we have received by grace. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to emphasize this. Yes, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brings us justification, freedom from the penalty of sin. But it is just as much the gospel truth that through the gospel, transformation comes as the Spirit of Christ sanctifies us. And all that we have seen about how we are supposed to live is impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. If you hear all these commands and you think, I can't do that, I want you to know you're right. If you have not received Christ and all his benefits by trusting in him alone for salvation, then you don't have the power you need to obey these commands. So my plea with you tonight is first, come to Jesus in faith. This Jesus whose blood alone is precious enough to atone for the sin of the world, who died, was raised, and is now glorified in heaven. Set aside your sin. Set aside your self-righteousness and trust in him alone for your salvation. Only then will you be able to fulfill any of these commands. But for you who already have Jesus as Savior and God as Father, you also are unable to obey these commands on your own. So do not approach these commands as a checklist, thinking you will get into God's good graces by your performance in them. Instead, believe in the promise that the Holy Spirit who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Seek first Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness by faith, and then by the power of his Spirit, you will be able to hope completely as his holy children, showing humble conduct, honestly cherishing your brothers and sisters. So we say with Augustine, may God command what he will and grant what he commands. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Our God, that is our prayer. Would you grant all that you command to us so that we may do it? Our hope is, our hope is in you alone. So help us to turn away from those things which distract us. Those things that are fading. Those things of man's glory. And instead, through your word, by your spirit, strengthen us to look fully at the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope and help us to live as you have called us in the time of our exile, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.